You seem like a real like seminar junkie. Like you go to a lot of them. You travel around a lot. Yeah. Are there any that really stand out? Uh, I love Clicker Expo. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was really enjoying uh, last time in Denmark, and I'm traveling to UK this year uh, because they changed the uh, um, lineup. I mean, it's going to be absolutely different from what it was because we you won't have to choose what you want to hear because it was always a difficult choice for me. And uh, they're going to talk about emotions, and I really, really, really want to hear that. And uh, Wolf, uh-huh. I think it's the Clicker Expo in England. Uh, yeah. Yeah, see, I've seen it um, advertised, Luminos. Yes, are you going? Uh, no, I'm not, no. No, oh. but I know that there's an- another good one that is in England, is the one that Shirag runs called... Oh, I'm going. Uh, oh, you Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I mean. <laughs> I mean, I can't resist. Uh, it's in, yeah, it's in uh, in February 2019, I think. Uh-huh. Ooh, so what, what about speakers... Which speakers have really stood out to you? As always, Susan Friedman, Dr. Susan Friedman. I mean, the, she was one of the speakers why I decided to do my ABA uh, uh, course, uh, ABA uh, master right now. She was the, the reason why I dig deeper in this in this field. And uh, I can't remember. I mean, everyone should see him. Uh, mm-hmm. And... Ken Ramirez has just agreed to do a podcast. Oh, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I'm hyped about that. <laughs> Hello? Yes, he's, he's, oh, you he's are a great... Okay. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I am. Uh, he's really great. I, I really enjoy hearing him, listening to him. And who else? I, I did enjoy... Uh, I don't know if you were attending, because it was also online, the Convergence 2018 conference. Uh, no, uh, I didn't see that one. Uh, it was uh, the convergence between human and animal training. It was in Seattle uh, okay. in July, um, and it was also recorded, and uh, there was a live transmission, so it was possible for me to attend because I couldn't travel to Seattle. Um, okay. It was really interesting because there were a lot of people who were working with people and with human uh, learners, so it was a nice comparison between human and animal learning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, there was been a big controversy I noticed yesterday. Um, Joe Rosie, who's been on the podcast before, mm-hmm. um, posted a video on Facebook of her clicker training her son to use a spoon. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the kind of parenting groups got hold of this and they were giving her loads of abuse and being quite horrible about it, saying really? that she could cre- create um, like an eating disorder kind of thing. I think that they mistook it for her training him how to eat. Mm. I guess they didn't really understand it. Um, so, yeah, that turned into a big <laughs> kind of like drama. Um, oh, I, I, I have to look for, <laughs> into it. But, yeah, we, I think that we often forget that basically we all learn in the same way and the mm-hmm. same principles apply to dogs, humans, horses. And we do use different reinforcement, but the rules that apply are the same and I don't see any anything wrong with teaching a child uh, how to use I mean tactic whole tactic I, I bet you are familiar with tactic yes, right? yeah, yeah. yeah so uh, like a whole tactic is based on a clicker training with humans mm-hmm. and it's not only used for kids and teaching uh, or uh, special needs uh, needs kids just it's also for 
regular kids, regular people, and also some uh, adults that want to develop some skills. So um, it's just using the principle of science. And cl- it's, cra- cool. it's crazy because, I mean, when you look at the origins of this field, mm-hmm. um, uh, this kind of animal training field, it, it really started off as a way of teaching um, people's skills. I think that I, f- I think I even remember them using it um, in the early days to teach people that had um, disabilities or or various conditions to use cutlery. So I think that that's not anything new. Yeah, it's absolutely nothing new. And basically, very often when we uh, teach some skills, mechanical skills, uh, clicker is so useful because it, it can break the task into tiny pieces. And for some people, uh, it can be easier to learn um, when they have, I mean, for all people, it's easier when we have a task split it into tiny pieces and we can learn each skill separately and then put it all together. And clicker is just a helpful tool. It's not like clicker is just dedicated for animals and, uh, you can use clicker. I mean, yeah, the tag whole package, but also, uh, you don't need to use clicker. You can use a different marker. You can use a different, uh, secondary reinforcer to mark the, the correct behavior. And uh, ABA is based on helping humans to have a better life. So to- Yeah, I mean, you, you could use a verbal marker if yeah. that was... I think sometimes people think that the click is almost a bit patronizing for a human, but yeah. really it's just a sound. I mean, you could use a, a verbal marker like yes or good or or whatever you wanted to if, that, if you are more comfortable with that. Yeah, absolutely. But clicker is sometimes it's easier, I think, even with humans to use a clicker because it's not uh, we don't use our voice. And always with the voice and uh, the verbal markers, we have some uh, attitude. And even if we are we, we are it's easier to change your voice than to change the clicker sound. And sometimes uh, it's there is no personal uh personal attitude to the to the learner when you use a clicker so if you are less sometimes less happy with the response of the learner and you click he won't hear it instead if you use a verbal marker uh, marker then there is a possibility that your voice may change so clicker is just a good tool to be used and there is nothing wrong with using clicker with humans it's just you know just another another tool we can use simply i uh, i checked out your blog and i w- i was having to kind of read it in google translate so i okay. it might not have gone uh, there well but english i think i, I hope uh, you found some english stuff there because i like there maybe i just went to the wrong page i don't know um <laughs> But I was I was reading about um, you were talking about do we need a cue for shaping? Oh yeah, it's in I've, English. This one. <laughs> oh, I've obviously just clicked on the Polish article or, or something. Um, but I thought that was an interesting question as well because there are lots of cues around training that some people use, um, like a cue that we're going to start training or a cue that we're going to finish training. I mean, what what's your opinion on that? I mean, the, the, the article you, you mentioned was about uh, the fact that we often forget that cues are selected by the learner. And this is not, I mean, the, the, the antecedent that precede the behavior are not the one, are not always the one we want to create for the learner. And sometimes the learner picks out uh, what is relevant for him. 
So in some, very often people say that uh, my dog sits on a verbal cue and then suddenly there are somewhere else somewhere in the other environment they say the verbal cue for sit and the dog doesn't sit and it turns out that that verbal cue was relevant but with uh, environmental cue so maybe a training venue they were practicing all the time or maybe the body position because this is such a big cue i mean whole body our body language is such a big uh big cue for dogs and very often when we do shaping, so we want to work on an Alfred behavior, we uh, start this and we have a certain body position and we start teaching a dog to, for example, uh, back, right, the backing. And the dog backs out and then suddenly we add a verbal cue, but the way we were teaching the behavior, the, our position in the first place during the teaching process, the learning process, uh, became a cue. And then we say the dog offers a behavior out of nowhere, which in fact is not true because the dog offers behavior because there is a cue in the environment that was present during the learning process. And if we want to avoid it, especially if we work with um, shaping without objects, so we don't have a certain object that is related to the behavior, then we should think about some other alternative cues that will be present only during learning process because this will help us to um, eliminate them later and avoid uh, behavior coming out of the blue, right? Because we, I mean, it's not coming out of the blue, but this is what we often think. It's coming because there are present cues um, that were available for the dog during the learning process. I don't know if I made it clear. <laughs> no, no, that makes sense. And I think that that's something that people often experience, hmm. especially when they go to dog training classes. And then you often hear people say things like, oh, well, my dog behaves really well in the hall. Hmm. Well, the reason for that is because your dog has done a lot of practice in the hall and maybe you haven't done a lot of practice in other environments. So the hall has become the cue for training. Yeah. And you haven't generalized that. So, so when, what you were saying about, um, identifying the other cues that maybe you're not intentionally adding in, that's important because then later on you can deliberately generalize those cues and maintain the one that you want to keep. Absolutely, yes. And if we are not aware of those cues, we often label dogs as uh, impatient, easily frustrated, hard to shape because they throw all the behaviors they know at us when we start shaping process, for example. And they do it not because uh, they are just, you know, impatient. They do this because we give them cues. And if we don't know that there are uh, the cues that are uh, relevant for the dog, we're in kind of a trouble because it's hard to teach another behavior and it's hard if we don't identify them, we may not ever be able to get rid of them. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, one of the issues that can happen accidentally as well is you can accidentally teach your dog that the cue means something different. Hmm. For example, recently I've been teaching my little dog um, to move on cue so right. to stay and like the release for the stay basically mm -hmm. um but he's started to think that when i release him from the stay he has to do a spin in a circle mm -hmm. and that's because initially i rewarded that a few times mm -hmm. and now he's starting to think that that's part of what i want from him yeah. so now i have to go so, so now moving forwards 
I have to make sure that I don't continue to reinforce the repetitions where he spins mm-hmm. to make sure that that behavior doesn't continue to happen. Yes. Absolutely. And then reinforce the repetitions where he does actually just do what I want him to do. Yes. But if you were not aware what evokes that behavior, then it's kind of a problem because if you can't identify what cues are relevant, then how do you want to change them, right? Yeah, well, I mean, essentially what I've accidentally done is, is uh, shaped him or taught him mm-hmm. to spin yeah. when I tell him to move. Yeah. Um, so it's it's just bad training, really, and now I have to f- fix that. Yeah. But, but when you go through that training process, you you find things like that happen, and it's trying to identify them early enough that they're relatively easy to resolve. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Because if you teach another behavior on the uh, on those conditions, so you have a behavior you don't want, but you start teaching another behavior, and they kind of become a, um, a chain, then it's very hard uh, to eliminate it. I mean, it's it's much difficult if you go. Uh, further with the process than if you identify it at the beginning and change it. Yeah, exactly, because anything that has more of a reinforcement history oh. is going to be harder to uh, extinguish, to, yeah. to make go extinct. I mean, we we see that all the time with behavior problems. The earlier we, we uh, work on them, then the less history of being reinforced is there and the easier they are to resolve. But but if you have a dog that's say been pulling on the lead for you know three or four years, then that's going to be a lot harder than if you've got a puppy that has been pull- pulling on the lead for a week. Absolutely, yes. Like the history of reinforcement is so powerful. So when uh, when a behavior is reinforced, then it's going to appear. It's going to be evoked. Uh, yeah, exactly. And I mean, this kind of segues onto um, scent work because <laughs> yeah. uh, obviously you're really into nose work and and all of that kind of stuff. And I remember when I first started nose work, I had to teach it for my university assessment. I was teaching my dog to detect on tobacco. Okay. And I didn't have anyone really to tutor me on it. Mm -hmm. All I had to do, all I had was like two DVDs and then I just had to try and figure it out on my own from there. And I didn't really, I didn't know what I know now from, you know, and I'm talking to people and going to seminars and workshops. And one of the mistakes I made in the early stages is when I got him to, t- um, to find the scent, when he would find it, he would scratch at it, which isn't something that I wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, and then because that had reinforcement history, I was always really struggling to get rid of that. Mm. Yeah. It's which I'm sure is something you've seen a million times. Yeah, scratching is like the first thing often dogs do because like when you look, what people do with dogs before they stand, they start nose work, any scent work actually, is often interaction with objects using paws. And uh, I very often see dogs that were taught, for example, many dogs in Poland that go into nose work, they start with obedience training. And we use a lot of platforms, we use discs, and dogs are taught to uh, put two front paws on the disc, for example, and they are taught to interact with objects with use, using just paws, not, not nose. And very often, this is a problem with uh, lack of clear criteria, a history of reinforcement of a different behavior. So if you combine it together, then we get... Uh, 
lack of clarity. So the dog does the behavior that was previously informed in a similar environment, which is scratching usually. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you are not patient enough and if you don't invest much time into building a new behavior with an absolutely different uh, reinforcement history and a different condition, uh, it depends what you want. Uh, my dog has a nose freeze and uh, one of my dogs and it takes time, especially if the dog has a different uh, kind of a default behavior uh, for the indication and um, you need to have a very clear criteria. And it takes time. It's not like, because we don't fix behaviors. We teach them. And if you have a behavior, uh, alert behavior you don't like, for example, scratching, it's not like you're going to fix it. It's not like you're going to uh, repair it and make it a different behavior. You need to teach a completely different behavior. And there will always, the problem is, if you want to use the same odor, it's always be the old cue for this first behavior. This is more complicated and makes things harder, but it's possible. It just it means you have to be really clear with the criteria and work you do. Well, one of the light bulb moments for me was when uh, uh, when someone said to me, "You have to control the reinforcement, or you have to control the dog whilst you're training." Yeah. Um, and in that example, what I had messed up is I was doing. Um, Sent work off the lead, so I had no control of the dog. So when he would find it, obviously I couldn't control. Mm -hmm. Well, I couldn't control the thing that he found. Um, so he had all of this opportunity to practice um, scratching at the tin. Mm -hmm. And what I should have done there is had him on a long line so I could control the dog. Yeah, yeah. And then that would have made it easier for me to have trained uh um alternative behavior although now i'm going back through i'm going back through scent work just because mm -hmm. i'm kind of on that kind of hype again <laughs> and um and i'm teaching it with a different cue mm -hmm. a different scent cue that is so i'm um teaching him to find kong now mm -hmm. uh, pieces of kongs so now i'm going through the process of teaching him a nose target to a kong um so i won't I won't make that mistake again. I won't give him the opportunity to mm -hmm. be rewarded for, for scratching. scratching it. Yes. Yeah. Like my, my first dog, uh, I mean, still, it's, it's not the first dog. Uh, like, uh, Gatsik, my main nose work dog, I would say, he was first taught to have, uh, there was no indication actually at the end. It was just a change of a behavior at first. And, uh, so I didn't teach any particular behavior. Uh, I just noticed the change of behavior he had uh, when he was uh, on the source. Then I decided I don't like it. It's not clear and I want to have a much uh, confident alert behavior and I want to have a clear criteria. So I taught a nose, uh, nose freeze, but it was really time consuming, especially that he had already, he already had a, a long history of, uh, doing many different behaviors around odor. So I had to invest much time in building in building new behavior from the scratch. We had to stop training, stop doing what we do, and start teaching it from the very beginning, from just conditioning uh, the odor back again and teaching him a nose freeze. And it was really time consuming. And then we had to move it to alerting on a different um 
on the different uh, scent holders. So on a straw, on a tin, uh, just on a Q-tip, and then on the different various positions. So it was in the vertical, it was placed on the vertical uh, position or somewhere on the ground because still for many dogs it's a different behavior. And uh, even if they can alert perfectly clear on a uh, on a height that is uh, uh, on the nose height, it's not as much clear for them when the height is uh, located on the ground because then they start to scratch. It's a different thing for them. You raised an interesting question there as well because when you talk about um, doing scent work with tins and holders and other types of containers, yeah. one of the issues there can be that those cues that you were talking about previously. So am I looking for the scent of, say, a piece of Kong or am I looking for the scent of a piece of Kong in a tin mm-hmm. or in a particular holder? Is that something that you've had a problem with uh, previously? No, because you try to vary the container that the holder you use quite often. So you not get used. You don't get your dog is not going to get used to. It's just that the the other scent cannot be relevant. And it's your job as a trainer to make sure that you use different materials. So you have uh, metal holders, you have uh, wooden holders, you have uh, plastic holders, uh, glass holders. So you use variety of holders. So the um, this, they're the only relevant cue is the targeted odor. And and so you basically you're going through generalization with yeah, that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and another kind of equipment question is, um, sometimes when you get those, uh, I don't know what the technical term is for it, mm-hmm. but where you have those kind of like, um, setups that have like, uh, say three holes and the dog has to search the holes. Yeah. Sometimes uh, those can cause problems as well, can't they? Because then the dog just le- learns to search in the holes as opposed to the area. Yeah, it's, I mean, I don't think it's a problem. It's like with any training, uh, if you do too much of one setup, it can be difficult to go beyond it. But basically, uh, I start with, I start with teaching discrimination first. So, uh, I start with, uh, first, um, conditioning the, the, the other. And then, uh, we go into, discriminating between hot uh, object and cold object and then we start real searches but I think that we use such a variety of containers such a variety of locations and uh, holders and everything in a training that to make sure that the only to enhance discrimination and uh, to make sure that the only cue that will be relevant is always other that nothing else doesn't matter if you search in the hole or you search in the room or you search some containers or cardboard boxes. The only relevant thing you are searching for, the only cue that will uh, evoke alert behavior is the targeted odor. When you say hot objects and cold objects, do you just mean objects that... Yeah, with odor and without. Okay, all right, cool. I haven't, used, I haven't heard that term before. What about um, uh, the type of scenting that you want from the dog? Because um, isn't there like a kind of like a different tempo to various searches? Like they can search in a way that's very intense but short-lived, and you can teach this, or you or they can search in a, a kind of a slower pace and have more stamina. Mm, 
basically, I think that, uh, I mean, this is important stamina. And people often forget that this is something, this is another parameter of the training. And we need to work on stamina. Mm -hmm. This is something that doesn't come just very easily because especially with sand work, which is really tiring for your dog when they have to work with a nose all the time, it's kind of uh, exhausting for many dogs. And uh, with different styles, I basically, I, I really want an independent dog and I don't want to um, influence the style the dog has. I mean, I do everything to teach the skills they need uh, to search, but we teach skills in nose work. We don't teach a particular, uh, a particular behavior because you can't teach uh, and go over every possible setup. You just give the dog the skills. You teach them the skill to find odor. And mm -hmm. how they do it, it's up to them. They need to learn during training how to solve this sort of a, uh, a setup and this one. And basically, some dogs, I, I want to have a dog that doesn't look for cues for me. And if they do it slowly, I'm okay with that if this is uh, the, the way to do it and if they don't miss the heights and they are clear in the training. And dogs that are fast... I mean, this is great too because scent work, uh, nose work is a is a time uh, based sport. So you are really you you want to have uh, the fastest time possible. But uh, I would rather have a dog that is slow and doesn't miss heights and it's clear with the behavior than a dog that is hectic and runs around in the uh, search area. Yeah, I I think I'm talking about um, like like a sniffs per minute type of thing, you know, like where you get that kind of like, um, yeah, I understand. And yes. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. yeah. I know what you mean right now. So basically I think that if we, what I noticed is that if the dogs are so hectic and they're sniffing so quickly and mm -hmm. uh, it's often the reason, how, uh, the, the reason for this is often how we train and what setups we use because very often dogs are that fast when we don't, uh, age heights. And with aging, the Sentco is becoming more uh, available for the dog, and the dog can start solving the puzzle uh, from further away from the source. And uh, I think that aging is helping dogs with building some skills they will need for future training. Uh, so um, I think it just the way we train can change how the dog works but it needs to be really careful in terms of like how we because i don't want to change the style the dog has it doesn't mean i don't want to change the efficiency okay okay so how do you differentiate between those two things okay so the style the style for me is like if a dog some dogs are very methodical in a, in a search so they go through a search area from one place to another just like in a pattern and some dogs just run into search area and hit the scent code and start working the scent code and this is something i won't change i may do some scent puzzles that will uh increase some skills in one type of a of a dog or the other uh but i do want to increase efficiency which means for me for me efficiency is a dog that comes into search area uh and from the start line he knows what he's supposed to do uh so it doesn't take time for him to just look around and consider why are we here i want a dog on the start line to understand what we are doing there and i want a dog that if he 
smells odor, if he sources, uh, if he hits the scent cone, if there is a change of behavior, I want the dog to go and finish the puzzle and not just leave it and search for another one and return. I want it to be efficient in a way that if he smells something, I want uh, smell something, I want him to finish it and find the source. Do you, I know that you um, run your own association for nose work in Poland. Yeah. Do you run competitions? Do you compete in competitions? Uh, we Yeah, I run a competition. I can compete mm, because I'm a judge. Okay. So uh, my dog can only be a white dog, which is a dog that goes first before all other dogs to check if all is okay with the height. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, we have a lot of lot of competition. Like this week, we have uh, this weekend, we will have a big competition in Poland. Uh, like almost twice a month, there is a there is a trial in Poland. No sort. Oh wow! Okay, because I don't think there are a huge amount of competitions in the UK. Mm. Yeah, it's quite new in the UK too, I think. Yes, but it's becoming much more popular. Um, Came in Poland. It was like it, our association had, uh, how old it is? Uh, it's two years right now. Mm. Uh, and really we have so many competitors right now. People are uh, traveling around the country to take part in trials. So how did you get interested in dog training? Uh, from horse training. <laughs> Okay, I didn't know you were into horses. Yeah, I was. Uh, when I was a kid, I started riding. I did dressage. When I was six, uh, I started riding. I got my first horse. And uh, I was doing that for like 12 years. Uh, I was even in the national team. And um, then I stopped. Uh, I always had a dog. And I didn't like the way horse riding looked like. And how it was approached, the classical horse riding. And I got a dog, another dog, and we had some troubles with this dog. And I wanted just to learn more about it. So um, kind of organically developed uh, from going to a dog training facility to wanting to learn more about it, to comparing it to how it was with the horses. And um, I started to search for a good uh, resources and I found Kay Lawrence and I started her trainer course. So you were into positive training from the beginning? Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. That's pretty lucky then. <laughs> is, 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 what is the state of dog training in Poland? Is it quite a positive? It depends. You know, it's like we have either you are a sports person so you do a some kind of a dog sport or you work with uh, pet dog owners and there is nothing in between so there is no kind of like there, we, we don't have concept training so like no match to sample or invitation almost and uh either you go you know you think about national championship or world championship in obedience or you just teach a dog to sit or lay down and there are two groups of trainers, basically. There is a big group of positive trainers, but it's not science-based, usually. And uh, there is a group of classical trainers who use aversion, coercion, and they use e-collars, prong collars. And there is a big part of them in IPO. I think everywhere, or actually in the world. IPO is not um, protection training. Much positive. Uh, it changes 
thankfully, but still we have a lot of a lot of uh, traditional trainers there. And in Poland, it starts to develop uh, the we don't have ABA at all. It just it's something absolutely new, and this is something I want to dig deeper into because I think we can learn so much from ABA in terms of like dog training and any any living creature training. Yeah, absolutely. I remember you telling me that when we met, you were talking about how Poland, like ABA is like, is not a big thing in Poland. It's not being talked about. Yeah. And I don't know. Do you think that that's just because there's a lack of translation? Yes, I think that that's a pretty big reason. And also, like, I was searching for a, a university uh, that where I want to start doing ABA stuff. And in Poland, there is no such thing. So... Even in the academic world, we don't have ABA. There are some courses, there are some, uh, something is developing in terms of a human ABA, but uh, it's still just a very beginning, not much you can do, not much you can learn from. And um, I found, I, I had to search uh, abroad and I found uh, uh, FIT, which is the Florida Institute of Technology, and they have a great ABA stuff out there. Uh, but in Poland, I think it's lack of translation. It's also, um, I mean, behaviorism is understood incorrectly. It's like a behaviorist is anyone who does something with dogs. Anyone can be a behaviorist. And it has nothing to do with science often. And many people are discouraged by this term because it's not properly understood especially positive dog training. It's like positive dog training is just giving treats. <laughs> uh-huh. Yes, yeah, yeah. Well, I think that a lot of people have that attitude where they view positive training uh, as kind of like bribing the dog. Mm, yeah, yeah. It's like complete misunderstanding of the principles of science. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, all right. So, yeah, it's like in Poland, I think it's, you know, getting better in Poland, especially I see that we have more seminars with people from the animal training world, not dog mm -hmm. training world, but animal training. And this is something really good because they have a huge um, experience in science training. They often uh, are into ABA world more than the dog people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, like we've had, you know, I had Peter Gilgem on the, on the podcast. He, he's, he trains, uh, with zoos and, um, you know, a lot of the, the people that we look up to as dog trainers either work in zoos or originated. Yeah, absolutely. In, from working with zoo animals. I mean, the whole field really originated from working with exotic animals. Yes. And if you can train and positive is not about just giving a treat. I've recently had a conversation with John a Glasgow dog trainer, uh, John McGigan, about uh, what is positive dog training. And that we we just don't understand it very often. And we sometimes argue about things that... We argue about things that we understand differently. So there's no point of arguing. Yeah, absolutely. And also, I, it's kind of become a little bit boring to talk about positive training because, I mean... It's like, let's just train the dogs kind of thing. Let's just talk about dog training. But um, yeah. it's, it's something that we just keep coming back to and, and arguing about. 
Um, and, and also it's kind of developed into, there are a lot of people that have become very extreme and culty about it, you know, and it gets to ridiculous extremes where you can't, um, you can't do anything out of, outside of the positive reinforcement quadrant. Uh, yeah. And I think this is like the quadrant, especially the recent discussion. I don't know if you have seen, uh, the posts about quadrants and, that this is uh, kind of a thing for dog training because there is nothing about quadrants in the uh, scientific world. It's uh, it's like I think that some people, if they don't have a deeper understanding of the principles of learning, they think that if they use only positive reinforcement uh, and by that they mean just giving treats, this is what a positive training is about. And yeah. this is not what is what a positive dog training, any positive training. A positive training is something absolutely different, and it's not just about positive reinforcement. It's about, for me, positive dog training, any positive training is about understanding how it all works and using at least aversive possible methods, of course. But it's like, not we can't deny the extinction exists, <laughs> that punishment exists, and uh, we just need to understand it. Yeah, I mean, there's not even... We shouldn't really even talk about this as being positive dog training, yeah. because really, this is just dog training. Yeah, exactly. um, this is This is what it is, and extinction and punishment do exist, and there are times when we're going to want to use those tools... Yeah. Um, and that doesn't make us evil or, or whatever. Um, so really we should just talk about this as dog training. I think, yeah. I think we need to do away with this whole like positive dog training narrative and just talk about dog training because at this point in the science, in this point in people's understanding, this is just the distinction between good dog training and bad dog training. Yes, absolutely. It's like when you talk about ABA, you don't talk about positive ABA. or Exactly. <laughs> you, you talk about ABA and using principles of learning and not positive ABA. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it's just got ridiculous, really, this whole narrative. Um, anyway, we've kind of got off on a tangent on that. Um if people are listening to this mm-hmm. and they are, they're interested in they they could be in a similar position to I was when I was starting my uh, starting to teach scent work, where sometimes it feels like with scent work, and this has probably changed over the last few years. But if you want to get involved with scent work, it's quite difficult to find information on. It's not like you know if you want to do, train tricks, you can go on YouTube and find a million videos on how to train tricks yeah. with scent work the information is a little bit harder to get hold of. So how do people start? I mean, I know you've got your courses, which is a great place for them to start. Um, but is there anything that they can do mm-hmm. to get going with this? I think with a scent work is why it's so difficult, because there are so many different methods you can use to teach it. And uh, so many trainers do it differently, especially if you work with the people who are into... Um, service dog training and to uh, police work, they kind of have a different approach sometimes because uh, we don't need the same thing that narcotic dog needs uh, in nose work. We sometimes need different search style because of the time uh, that is necessary and nose work and a speed and, and multiple heights. But basically, if you want to start training, you need to find the organization that is somewhere uh, in your 
uh, vicinity in your country at least. So you know what are the rules. If you think about competing in nose work, if this is why you want to start, if this is one of the reasons you want to start, then I would recommend just searching for a organization in your country, uh, reading the rule book, and finding a trainer that prepares uh, people to uh, competition because this is the easiest way I think uh, for a person to start but if you don't have an access to a trainer there are various I think first online options like online classes like you mentioned I have my own one but also um, there are basically what scent work is about is simply teaching a target odor response so you need to the first thing you need to do is condition the odor so uh, when you know what odor is what is the one you want to use you can try if you don't have an organization uh, any association in your country you can simply use anything you want your dog to search for it can be tobacco it can be coffee whatever you want and you need to make an association between that odor and uh, reinforcement and with food, right? Basically, what, this is what we use in the beginning. And you need to find out what indication you want to teach. Uh, because basically, nose work is just teaching certain behaviors in the presence of a cue, which is older. And uh, I think before you go into any searches, it's the first thing you need to do is to make a very clear association between uh, the target odor and the food. And I would really recommend to understand what are the criteria because if if you think about trialing, then it's better to uh, know from the start what is required. And if not, if it's just for fun, then uh, if you go through the phase of conditioning order, then you can simply start uh, doing some fun games with uh, uh, this this order you have chosen. Yeah, so I mean, I know that some people, if they're just... Uh, training for fun, then they might change the indication. So they might um, decide that they want their dog to retrieve a scented item. Yeah. That's something that a lot of people do for, for fun dog training. Yeah. Whereas if you're doing it for competition, then you want some kind of response. Like you were talking about nose targeting mm -hmm. or um, some people might teach like a sitting behavior, but you want some kind of in clear indication that they found scent. Yeah. So I guess the first step is deciding what do you want to do? What are your goals? Do you want to do competitive? If so, you need to look up the rules and and make sure that you're training for those rules from the start. Yes, because if often it's like uh, scratching is uh, you will get a penalty points for scratching and many other. Absolutely, yeah. And then if you want to go into if you're just doing this for fun, then you need to decide what you want your dog to do just yeah. for fun. Is it going to be the retrieve? Um, or what kind of indication are they going to have to give? Absolutely, because it's like either it doesn't matter if you do it for fun or for uh, competition, which also should be fun. Uh, it's still dog training, and <laughs> you should do it correctly. And often with indication, we have to consider that if you want your dog to sit in the presence of another, then the sit has to be really mastered. I mean, not in only in the presence of uh, of another, but First, this is not like, this is something that needs to be taught separately first. Uh, 
and uh, same with uh, lying down because I often see dogs, especially in the pet dog uh, world, that with people who start doing nose work, and they want they say, "I want my dog to lay down when they find uh, when they find odor." And the problem is the dog has issues with lying down on the grass or on the wet uh, surface. And then we have a problem because if you don't train it, then we will have a problem of indication in the scent work. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you you want to have a solid behavior before you start. And I often think uh, about if, because I, I have seen so many people who started doing this for fun and then realized that uh, this is such a great thing. They want to try, you know, competing. And then they have a history of scratching or retrieving, which is often forbidden in the rules. Uh, so it's better, safer to pick up the behavior that will be okay if you want to in future maybe someday you'll decide okay I want to try even just for once so on your courses what do you teach what what is your uh, goal uh, as a behavior because it's the easiest behavior from my experience is a no target Okay. And this is what we start with. We teach a nose target. And in the first class, we prepare for exams. They are like an older recognition test in the USA. Uh, so the dog searches uh, the cardboard boxes. Uh, and among 12 of the cardboard boxes, there's one with odor. They have to indicate on it. Mm-hmm. The first level we do. Uh, and after they do this, after they pass exam, they can start preparation for trials. So we do interior searches, exterior containers, uh, vehicle searches. Yeah, yeah I, I, I think that obviously the indication that you choose is obviously just going to depend on your goal. It's going to be a personal choice. Mm-hmm. But I do think that the uh, nose target freeze behavior for me, is the one that looks the coolest. I love, I love watching videos of dogs giving that indication. It's just so cool. Um, which is, which is why that's what I'm doing now with my dog. I really want to teach him to freeze nose target. So, so we're starting off by teaching that behavior separately from any kind of searching task. And then we're going to uh, bring that in. Yeah. It's like, I mean, this is also why I choose freeze. Uh, it's also the first thing that touches the, the, the source of odor is nose. So for many dogs, it's the easiest behavior. And um, often people, but of course, you can teach anything you want, actually. Uh, but it depends on the clarity of training and how much time you are going to spend teaching the behavior itself. Yeah, so with my dog, I taught him a sustained nose touch to my hand. Huh? Um, which, although at the time wasn't intended for uh, scent work, I just wanted to do that. When I've now started to teach a sustained nose target to the Kong, I've actually found that quite um, quite helpful because he already understands the concept of mm-hmm. holding your nose to something. Yeah, it's. Uh, um, I I also use. I also work on uh, hand. Uh, nose uh, or chin rest or nose touch uh, and it really helps the dog to transfer the behavior to um, to odor later <laughs> you got an ice cream van outside uh, no it was just it's uh, do you hear it now no no not right it turned off thank god yeah yeah that was just really funny <laughs> <laughs> it was, um, sorry uh, 
Yeah, it was just a... a, a it doesn't matter. I, I just thought it was funny, that's all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, so, I mean, but you find that with a lot of training, don't you? You know, if you teach a behavior in a different context, then it's going to help out when you need it for something else because a dog already has an understanding of the concept. And in, yeah, in recent... Absolutely. In recent years, I've, I've heard a lot of people talk about this, where we're not... A lot of people are saying, let's not just teach this in one context in one training scenario, let's teach this in five different ways so the dog has a really good understanding of what this means, what this concept is. Absolutely, yes. Especially in a, a activity like work where it requires the use of skills, one skill in different environments and different setups. Because, as I said, we don't teach... I mean, you can teach a dog... To the way he has to solve the puzzle because it depends on the air, on the wind, on the temperature. The dog, you teach the skills and you generalize them in many, many different setups. And this, what kind of, yeah. what kind of distractions do you uh, work with with your dogs? I remember sharing one video that went viral of this dog that was searching in an airport and he was searching on the belt that carries the suitcases around. Mm -hmm. So once he gave the indication, he just kept kind of like roll, uh, the, the, what do you call it? The escalate, escalator. I can't remember what you call uh, it now. The, the belt, but the belt carried yeah. on taking him round, which was <laughs> really funny. But the dog was obviously well trained for that environment because he just kept indicating. <laughs> so the distraction we use is, uh, food, uh, okay. uh, toys, uh, uh -huh. but the food or toys are always contained. So we don't just place in a trial, we don't place food on the ground so the dog can eat it. But it's, for example, there are 20 containers in the search area and one of them has odor, but the other one has food inside. Mm -hmm. uh, or is that something you would build up to? So, like you, you say you, you at the moment you would keep the food in the container as a as a distraction. Do you ever do searches where the food is accessible for the dog? It depends on a dog and the level of training, but yes, it's something you can absolutely absolutely work on. It's it's not something you will meet in the trial, but it's something, or maybe you can uh, encounter it in a, an exterior search. When, uh, if someone left something, because we can't control the environment in a complete way, because there always is something, there can always be something present that we are not aware of, right? But, um, yeah, you can do that. It's not a big problem. It's just a way, I mean, it's, it's simply increasing the criteria. Yeah, because, I mean, dogs that are working in police forces and all that kind of thing, that's the sort of standard that they're going to need, and obviously they achieve that. Um, yes. This is go going off topic a little bit, but um, I thought I've just while we're talking about scent work, um, I remember when I was teaching my dog to detect tobacco, mm -hmm. I was doing the search, and then he indicated on a cigarette butt that was on the floor, mm -hmm. and I really was not expecting that at all, um, and because I wasn't expecting it, I kind of like wasn't sure what to do in that moment. I just didn't have time to process it, so I missed the opportunity to reward it. Mm -hmm. But um that was just a kind of one of those moments where um it's it's just a, it's just a funny training story. Like you have to 
Um, be prepared for those little things. Make sure that your area is ready. But things okay. can change so quickly. And that's one of the challenges of scent work is um, you kind of don't... I mean, you obviously you tr- you prepare for the situation, but you don't know what could be out there when you when you go out there, especially if you're working, if someone else is setting up the search for you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And sometimes even if you are setting up the search for yourself, because once uh, this is, I mean, similar a little bit to your story, but uh, I have two dogs that work and nose work, my own dogs. And I did a search for one dog uh, in one week. And then later, a week later, I came back with another dog. It it's a different, different setup with different heights. And we started the search and my dog indicated somewhere the hide was not supposed to be. And it turned out that I left a hide from the previous training. And I, uh, okay. yeah, and I was like quickly, he was indicating and I have to trust him because I know that he's not doing false alerts. And, you know, I clicked, I reinforced it. And then I went to check. Uh, it was kind of a gamble because I had to decide if I trust him or not in that moment. But then, because I didn't remember that I left a hide up there. Mm, but I did, <laughs> and I checked, and the hide was still there. So yeah, well, you kicked my ass on that one because I I wasn't quick enough to to reward, but you got it straight away. <laughs> but that's one of the challenges, isn't it, of any kind of scent work? Same thing with tracking and man trailing is having that ability to trust your dog. I mean, I remember I went to watch some working trials stuff, and I was talking to the judges, and they were saying that one of the biggest mistakes that people make is not trusting their dog's decision in tracking so they uh either pull their dog on or they they don't go the the way that the dog wants to go because they think that they know better which is obviously ridiculous yes i think like with uh scent work i like there are two things i trust i trust my dog and i trust my training this is something i learned from sarah owings and uh that you have to trust your dog but you also have to trust your training because uh i had a situation uh i've seen so many handlers that first they don't trust the dog they think they know better and they also they don't trust the training because they know they've been sloppy about it and they know that the behavior the dog present cannot be trusted because the way they train and this is like a vicious circle and uh i've seen so many people that were just taking the dog out of the search area from the hide because they thought that uh this is a false alert and the dog was actually indicating on the hide but they thought that they because they were overhandling they were just uh showing the dog each part of the area and insisting on checking objects and the dog finally indicated but they said that I didn't call that because I thought that he was doing false alert because I convinced him to do that. <laughs> That's uh, that could be, I imagine that will be extremely damaging mm-hmm. to, to your training. Yes. Yes. That's why yeah. I think that independence in search, that's why I do a lot of searches off leash and I start with off leash training before I add a leash because I want my dog to be first independent before I add any interaction with the handler in the searcher. So where can people find the courses that you do and, and the content that you put out there? Uh, where do they find it? Yeah, yeah. So if, if people are on the internet or, uh, you know, my, where do they find you? On my Facebook fan page. Uh, Pardon? On my Facebook fan page. Okay. Uh, so it's soon it's going to be a new website, uh, but it will start in October. And now okay, uh, so the best place for people to find you is on Facebook at the moment. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And that's under uh, what name? 
my name, Agnieszka Janarek, dog trainer. Okay, brilliant, perfect. Um, yeah, awesome. So they can go to Facebook. They can. Are your courses listed on Facebook, yeah. or do they message you? Yeah, they are listed on Facebook. They can message me. They have questions. Excellent, perfect. Well, it was brilliant to talk to you. Yeah, it was really great. Thank you for having me. Ah, oh, no, a pleasure. Um, well, have a good day. Yeah, you too. Thank you so much.